Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, and Happy New Year from the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Uh, you can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our events in person and online, including on January the 12th, Katie Martin on her new biography of Angela Merkel. Coming up on the show today, Joseph Horowitz, author of the new book, Vorjak's Prophecy and the Vexed Fate of Black Classical Music. Uh, Joe, Welcome to Bookstack. Pleasure to be here, Richard. So congratulations on the new book. Um, what was Vorjak's prophecy? Dvorak was in the United States running the National Conservatory of Music in New York from 1892 to 1895. And in 1893, he was reported uttering what became the most famous, influential, and controversial words he ever uttered. And uh, what he said was that the so-called Negro melodies would be the fundament for a great and noble school of American classical music. And there's a second component of that prophecy, which is that he said something or thought something rather similar about Native America, that the lore, the music, the history of the Native American and also the extinction of the Native American all of this would become fit subject matter for an, a, a future American music. And um, it's an amazing prophecy in many respects. One could say that he was wrong about Native Americans, that Americans have never regarded Indians as representative or iconic Americans, at least not to the degree that they could build a body of music around Native America, although there was an attempt made for a period of 30 or 40 years. But with Black America, with the seedbed of the sorrow songs, with the Black musical mother load, that of course fostered the popular music genres that America produced and which are today known the world over. What it mainly did not produce was in American classical music, and I believe that American composers of concert music and opera largely squandered this remarkable resource. It, it is worth saying, isn't it, before we move to the squandering of, of that resource, that uh, Vorjak himself really did come in for a, a lot of hostility for the things that he said, that uh, at the time uh, kind of critics um, denounced him uh, in many ways for what he was saying. And and also, even though he writes one of the most famous pieces of classical music ever written, uh, the New World Symphony, using a lot of these traditions, somehow the the other bits of that visit to the United States and uh, what, he, what he said then remains surprisingly, if not unknown, then certainly underappreciated. It's an amazing saga. Uh, it's it, it had been largely forgotten although the interest in Dvorak in America has quickly uh, increased with the waning of modernism. It was the modernists who had no use for Dvorak, and that's one of the central themes of my book, as you know. But to just look at Dvorak's sojourn as a mirror on the American experience is a, a limitless topic. Uh, yes, he encountered a lot of hostility in Boston, where he was regarded as, as a naive outsider, uh, his notion that black and red Americans could be considered iconic was considered 
not only naive, but even obnoxious or dangerous. Uh, Philip Hale, the leading Boston music critic, denounced him as a negrophile. But you also learn, maybe even more surprisingly, is that the climate of opinion with regard to race in New York cultural and intellectual circles was very different. Was, we would consider it today enlightened. Uh, Dvorak's notion that this black musical mother load was the greatest musical resource that Americans possessed was widely believed. Uh, Janet Thurber, who ran the National Conservatory, thought that. Henry Craybill, who was the leading music critic in, in New York, thought that. So um, there are all kinds of responses. And then going to the second part of your comment about Dvorak's output, yes, we know the New World Symphony. We remain remarkably ignorant of some of the other music that he composed here subsequent to the New World Symphony in 1894, the New World Symphony being 1893. His American style evolved to the point where he actually became one could say an American composer, just as say Scarlatti coming from Italy became a Spanish composer. You talk in the book about how essentially, I mean, you use the word squandered there, that uh, that this tradition, there's a battle that goes on in the early part of your book, in the uh, essentially about the early part of the the 20th century. But then really the story that you tell is how essentially classical music in, in America and beyond, of course, um, but how classical music in America stayed essentially white. Right. That's one of the central threads of the book. Yes, um, it stayed white. And uh, the short uh, answer to the question why is in two parts. The first part, which is predictable, and obvious is that our institutions of classical music were, let's say, racist, segregated. The second part, which I find surprising and interesting, and which is a central theme of my book, is modernism. The modernists created what I call the standard narrative for American classical music, and it begins with the premise that there was nothing much to build on before 1915. The modernists are eatable, they don't acknowledge forebears. So the story that was told by Aaron Copland, that was told by Virgil Thompson, that was told by Leonard Bernstein, is that American classical music begins around 1915. And I would say Copland in particular, as the main spokesperson for this narrative, is, although a populist, a synthetic populist, not a born populist, He's not altogether comfortable with the vernacular. Uh, when he does Billy the Kid, he says he doesn't really care for the cowboy tunes that he's been working on. He has to fracture them and turn them upside down. So this, 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 this lack of proximity to the vernacular, I adduce as one of the defining attributes of musical modernism in the United States, and it's one of the reasons that the standard narrative penalizes George Gershwin, penalizes Charles Ives, and I've just mentioned our two greatest creative talents in classical music, and also it is not attentive to the sorrow songs, is not attentive to this black musical mother load, which so amazed Dvorak, and which was written about most famously, uh, I would say, by W.E.B. Du Bois in The Souls of Black Folks, 
when he's essentially recapitulating with enormous eloquence Dvorak's prophecy. And, and there was a lineage of black classical music that goes underground, beginning with the modernists who are not interested in it. So it begins above ground with Dvorak, with Samuel Coleridge Taylor, the black British composer, with Harry Burley, Dvorak's assistant in New York, who becomes the pivotal figure in turning the sorrow songs into art songs. And then the composers after Burley are the ones that we're only excavating now. And initially there are four of them who write for orchestra. There's Florence Price, William Grant Still, William Levy Dawson, and Nathaniel Dett. And uh, without special pleading, we can look at Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony, premiered by Leopold Stokowski in 1934 and say, at least I would say, this is one of the most formidable symphonies ever composed by an American. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the extraordinary things about that um, about that piece by Dawson is that I mean, essentially, it gets a standing ovation. Uh, it's conducted by Stokowski, one of the most uh, famous and iconic conductors, particularly uh, when he kind of goes on to uh, be the conductor um, in in the shadows, so to speak, in in Fantasia, known to literally millions of people around the world. So this is a huge success. But then, as you say, it's there's nothing. There's there's no follow up with the piece. The piece does not get taken up. Yeah, let's let's just uh, be more explicit in uh, describing what you just alluded to, which is that the initial reception of this symphony. It was done by Stokowski three times: once on a subscription concert at the Academy of Music, once on a Young People's concert in Philadelphia. He took it to Carnegie Hall and did it there. And one of those performances was nationally broadcast. So it was noticed, it was heard, it was written about. At every one of those three performances, the audience erupted into applause after the second movement. It's a three movement symphony. And the applause was so sustained that the orchestra had to stand midway through the performance. So we're talking about a huge, unprecedented success. And then decades of silence. And why? I mean, that's the, the question we, <laughs> yeah, we, 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 all, we all want yeah, to know. Well, there are, there, there are a few factors. Uh, one is that Dawson couldn't find a publisher for this enormously successful symphony. He couldn't find a publisher until after 1960. So he was dealing with parts. He had a limited number of parts, a limited number of scores, uh, we know that Monteur looked at it. We know that Metropolis looked at, sorry, Klemperer looked at it. We know that Radzinski looked at it. Um, I would say bottom line, there are two reasons, and they're the same two reasons that I mentioned 10 minutes ago. The first was that we're talking about orchestras that are segregated. There are no black players. There are no black soloists. There are no black conductors. That doesn't mean they won't play black music. And in Stokowski's case, um, I would wager that he probably was more attracted to the piece than less because it was composed by an African-American. Um, so the second reason, which I think is certainly pertinent, is simply aesthetic. This is a romantic national symphony in the tradition of Dvorak. It has nothing to do with Boulanger 
It has nothing to do with neoclassicism. It has nothing to do with modernism. It's not an old-fashioned symphony. I mean, it's very, very ingenious in its structure, its harmonic vocabulary. Uh, it's an absolutely uh, breathtaking compositional achievement, but it's not modernist. I mean, that's one of the themes that that runs through the book, that you have um, what I suppose today we would describe as the systemic racism, um, which is uh, there in uh, the life of classical music. But th but there is also uh, this aesthetic thing that you're talking about. But one of the things that comes across really strongly is this idea of an, a genuinely American voice. And, you know, I noticed that John McWhorter, uh, the social critic and uh, academic, Who's, who, when he was reviewing your book, that he was talking about that tradition and saying that it can feel at times messy. Uh, you never quite know what's coming and might wonder whether it all hangs together. And that's just it. Maybe as an American piece, he's talking specifically about Porgy and Bess here. Uh, it shouldn't hang together any more than America ever has. That that strikes me as, as, a, as a very astute piece of criticism. I know that uh, authors don't like to read reviews, but nevertheless, uh, I think he's 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 got something about the book there. McWhorter <laughs> gets the book and he runs with it. Um, he said it, it gave him a new way of processing the timeline of American classical music, which is just, you know, recapitulating what's in the book. But then he goes to Porgy and Bess at the Met and discovers that he experiences it very differently than he had before. So yes, I have created a kind of template, a kind of trope, which seems to me American. Uh, it applies to Walt Whitman. It applies to Herman Melville. Uh, it applies to Mark Twain. It applies to George Gershwin. And it applies to Charles Ives. And what is this template? I would say it's the self-invented American artist who is... There's a wonderful quote from Emerson about the mud and scum of things, which McWhorter cites and which I cite and which Ives cites. And uh, Emerson is saying that there's a kind of great art in which the mud and scum sings. And I think that's something, there's something there that's peculiarly American and that those American creative artists, whether they're writers or painters or composers who have created an, uh, an uh, artworks that seem to us distinctly American, not European, not Eurocentric. I would say very often there's something, quote, unfinished. There's something unfinished in Ives. There's something unfinished in Porgy and Bess. And yes, we are ourselves unfinished. We're an unfinished nation. We may even become a permanently unfinished nation because we don't seem to be making very much progress in dealing with our two original sins, the, the, the slave trade and the Indian Wars. I, d I wonder as well with uh, with Porgy and Bess that I mean obviously Gershwin was a, a, a white composer writing about a black subject. Um, the, has the have the debates about cultural appropriation um, have they complicated uh, the way in which we think about that work? Yes, I think it's one of the most. It's hard to think of a, of an opera of comparable stature that's been 
as misunderstood as Porgy and Bess. I have an entire book on Porgy and Bess. It's about Ruben Mamoulian and Porgy and Bess called On My Way. And uh, I had an epiphany writing that book using the Mamoulian archive at the Library of Congress. I discovered that the ending of Porgy and Bess was essentially written by Ruben Mamoulian, not by Ira Gershwin or George Gershwin or, or DuBose Hayward, and that it originated with Mamoulian's rewrite of the ending of the play, Porgy, by DuBose and Dorothy Hayward, which he also directed on Broadway. The nub is that for Mamoulian, Porgy and Bess did not aspire to authenticity. It was not essentially a black opera. For Mamoulian, it was a story and an iconic uh, archetypal story of a cripple made whole. That's the story of Porgy and Bess, according to Ruben Mamoulian, a man who's crippled, who's literally crippled, who's never had a woman, falls in love, he rids the community of evil when he kills Crown, and at the end, he, he says he's on his way. He picks himself up after the tragedy, the personal tragedy of losing Bess, and everybody sings, Lord, I'm on my way. The crucial line, bring my goat, is Mamoulian's line. The ending of the opera with a spiritual is Mamoulian's invention. So for Mamoulian, the story of Porgy and Bess transcends race. And that's a big component of the opera. You're left with an opera with two endings, Mamoulian's ending, which is redemptive and transcendent, and Bose Hayward's ending, which precedes it, when Porky sings, Oh Bess, oh where's my Bess, which is a tragic ending. Uh, any performance of Porky and Bess must aspire to seamlessly combine these two endings, which Gershwin is obviously very consciously endeavoring to do. But unless you know that, that this one central thread of Porgy and Bess has nothing to do with the African-American experience. You don't know Porgy and Bess. And there are many, many other things that could be said about it. In general, I'm not very sympathetic to the idea that cultural appropriation is uh, a sin because all culture, all art is appropriative. And in my book, and in all my writings about black classical music, I say that black classical music is both black and white. Uh, Dvorak is part of the story. Gershwin is part of the story, just like Du Bois and, and Dawson are part of this story. I mean, one of the, the themes running through the book is how black classical music is, is pushed to the margins um, in terms of the establishment. Uh, I suppose you double down, really, when you, when you take on Florence Price, because uh, not only is she African-American, but she's also a woman. Uh, and so it, it's remarkable in many ways that um, when, when you see her output now, that uh, really she, she was such a, a talented but peripheral figure in her own time. All of that is true, but she's now suddenly not so peripheral. Everybody's racing to perform Florence Price. I don't see a similar alacrity in performing Dead in Dawson, uh, who are exceptional composers. And uh, I do feel that our orchestras in this country have to do a better job 
curating America's musical past. Uh, this is a constant refrain in my book. Even more important than Florence Bryce or Dawson is the neglect of Charles Ives. If we're going to have a future for classical music in this country, if American orchestras are to have a viable, formidable future, they have to embrace our greatest composer, and that is Charles Ives. I, I, Ives is not sufficiently known, not sufficiently performed, partly because he's not, not part of the modernist narrative, and also there's a prejudice against him, that his music is, is difficult to appreciate. I've produced six films, six documentary films, linked to the book. They're, they've been released by Noxos. You can find them on the web. And I think the, the most important of those films is the one about Ives, which is nothing more or less than an act of advocacy. It's an 80-minute film with music and commentary and wonderful visuals by Peter Bogdanoff that attempts to make the case not only that we need to know this composer and put him on the same level in our cultural pantheon as Walt Whitman or Herman Melville, but that we can know him, that he's not a poisonous composer, that he composes music that's, that's readily appreciable. I mean, it is interesting that uh, in many ways your books over 40 years, your books on Toscanini, uh, which I, I remember reading so enthusiastically myself in the 90s, uh, but Wagnerites, classical music in America, uh, you, so much of your work has been on this theme of uh, what is American classical music. And, and, and here you call it uh, in many ways an account of futile advocacy, uh, you say. <laughs> ne nevertheless, it is. It does seem to me that, you know, perhaps uh, to, well, I suppose to put it in personal terms, your time has come that so many of the of the composers that you're talking about, so much of the tradition that you're talking about is now moving uh, to the mainstream. I, I think of that uh, very high profile Philadelphia Orchestra uh, uh, CD uh, of the, the symphonies of, of Florence Price, for example, uh, the Metropolitan Opera putting on Porgy and Bess, that uh, it, it, it does seem that uh, in many ways change uh, for whatever reason uh, is coming. It's a start, but if it's only going to be black classical music, I fear this will be an ephemeral change. We need a more systematic curatorial effort. There's so much music that falls outside the modernist narrative, which is important music that's not known, that's not performed, whether it's early music, like the music of George Chadwick, and don't sneer at George Chadwick. George Chadwick, Jubilee is a piece that should be as well known as the Stars and Stripes Forever. Um, or it could be Lou Harrison, who I believe is the composer of the most formidable of all American concertos, or Bernard Herrmann, who we still only know as a film composer, Arthur Farwell, the leader of the Indianist movement, um, there's so much music that we need to, to assimilate if we're going to ever turn this exercise into something that seems American rather than fundamentally Eurocentric. I don't see orchestras sufficiently performing the Dawson Symphony right now. Uh, they all are in a panic to, com to, to perform music by black composers, but they really haven't figured out what's out there. 
I wonder how much this is going to do. Uh, it has to do with education as well. That that uh, how strong is the orchestral tradition in schools today? Uh, I, I, I wonder uh, even even in orchestras. I, I wonder how much effort is put into uh, the educational side, but also the scholarly side in terms of uh, programming. My, uh, my my own college president at Bard, Leon Botstein, would be uh, very much the exception to that. Has been at the forefront of. Uh, trying to think about scholarship and performance together, but uh, but he, he as I say he he strikes me as the pretty much as the exception. Okay, uh, let's run with this topic. If you look at uh, museums in America, they all have scholars on staff. Uh, you could not imagine an American museum without scholars on staff. Very frequently, the guy who's running or the woman who's running the museum is himself or herself an art historian. Orchestras in this country do not have scholars on staff. The exception is the Botstein, whose all of whose uh, programming is infused with scholarship and with themes that are extrapolated from the music to create a, a bigger frame. That's what I've been doing as well since the 1990s when I ran the Brooklyn Philharmonic and now I do it in DC with my chamber orchestra, post-classical ensemble, so what Leon is doing, what I am doing, is what orchestras are not doing. Uh, in the most banal uh, sense, it's, it's a staffing problem. They don't have people on staff who can guide this kind of a curatorial effort. And in fact, it seems to me that that's one way to address this problem, to suggest that orchestras here need dramaturgs, the very thing which orchestras and opera companies have abroad. And that would require an act of training because musicians who are coming out of conservatories are certainly not equipped to do the kind of curatorial work which seems to me essential. In fact, I've talked to a number of music educators uh, who are interested in creating master's degree programs to train people to serve as dramaturgs for American orchestras. Something like that might happen this summer at Brevard, at the Brevard Music Festival, which in July is presenting a festival around my book, Dvorak's Prophecy. I mean, it it is interesting in the in the book how you do make a strong case for classical music, not just on it on its own terms, but uh, in terms of the the life of the nation, if you like, and the yeah. civic civic values yeah. that are attached to it. And it, and it is a curious thing, isn't it, about classical music that um, we we have absolutely no problem in talking about the likes of uh, Walt Whitman and Mark Twain and Emerson as being so central to the American story. And yet somehow classical music uh, seems peripheral, somehow snobby or highfalutin and not central. What, 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 why is that, do you think? And, and how, how do we overcome it? <laughs> well, Richard, you know very well that in my book, there's an enormous amount of attention paid to Van Wyck Brooks and his notion of a usable past. Uh, here's a guy at the beginning of the 20th century as a prominent literary critic and historian who decried that American writers didn't have a usable past. And then he went about finding one. And so did others like Matheson and Mumford. 
they discovered Moby Dick. That's pretty usable. And more generally, they discovered that writers like Hawthorne, like uh, Melville, like Whitman, actually created the foundation that American writers need. We don't have that foundation in classical music, even though we have the perfect person. I mean, if, if it's just self-evident that Ives is our musical Whitman, Ives is our musical Melville. In so many respects, Ives recapitulates the same template as these, as these two great writers, and we have failed to use him. This is just an in, <laughs> incalculable deficit that we failed to use Ives. Of course, we were late to Ives, but that was a long time ago, 1939. The Concord Sonata was discovered, 1951. Long time ago, Bernstein gave the premiere of Ives' Second Symphony. After that, and after he recorded it, it should have become standard repertoire for American orchestras. Most American orchestras, in my experience, don't know Ives' Second Symphony. Most American conductors, or say conductors active in the U.S., it's amazing to me how few of them have ever performed the Second Symphony of Charles Ives, which you know, is it the great American symphony? I, probably it comes closer, I would say, than any other, although Ives himself surpassed it, uh, to being our one iconic symphonic utterance. So this is work that, that, that needs to be done once and for all. And I, I suppose picking up on that that theme that uh, there is a usable past. It's just that it's being um, it, it needs discovering. And and I suppose that when you look at the black classical tradition that you're writing about uh, in the book, that the fact that uh, people like uh, Isata Kana Mason with her, uh, her, her CD on Gershwin and Earl Wide, that Philadelphia orchestra disc of Florence Price that I mentioned before, that Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra with a new recording of the Dawson Symphony, that these things matter because people listen to those things and then they move on to to the next thing. They want to, they want to hear more of them and they become part of the mainstream and then that past really does become usable in a, in a quite profound way. Again, I think it has to be a structured inquiry. I think it's not enough to just hit and miss, begin play some of this music that's been ignored and neglected and forgotten. There has to be a concerted effort based on an informed overview. That's, that's my opinion. At any rate. But it's a start. Yeah, I know that's what you want to say. And uh, I agree. Uh, but what I mo mainly see is not the start. I see the finish that's not yet perceptible. So the book is Vorjak's Prophecy and the Vexed Fate of Black Classical Music. It's written by my guest, Joseph Horowitz, and published by Norton. Uh, but for now, Joe, it's always such a pleasure. Congratulations <laughs> again on the book, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.